The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In January 1901, a no-nonsense British soldier named John William Dunn was convalescing on the Italian Riviera as he recovered from wounds suffered during the Boer War in South Africa. One night he had a very vivid dream in which he was back in Africa, in a dusty Sudanese town, when three ragged explorers approached him. The following morning, Dunn awoke to read an article in an English newspaper that talked about the arrival of the paper's overland expedition in Khartoum. The description of the men in their expedition almost exactly matched Dunn's dream. It was as if he had already read the newspaper account before it happened. Soon after, Dunn began having other vivid dreams that seemed to come true as well. In one, a volcanic blast destroyed an island town. In another, a rubber factory burned to the ground. As time went on, Dunn began to believe that many people had prophetic dreams. Only most people forgot them. He just happened to be one of the fortunate few who actually recalled his dreams. In 1927, Dunn wrote a book titled An Experiment with Time, in which he maintained that dreams are a window into future events. Some readers found Dunn's theories enthralling. Others thought it was a confusing mix of pseudoscience and philosophy. But the questions Dunn raised echoed other great thinkers throughout history, who have had similar questions about the nature of dreams and reality. Throughout the field of philosophy, there have been many times where opposing thinkers have argued over different ways of contemplating life itself. During the Enlightenment period in the 18th century, those battle lines were drawn between the rationalists and the empiricists. Rationalism is based around the belief that the ultimate starting point for all knowledge is reason. During the Age of Enlightenment, many great minds came to question the authority of the monarchy, and thus began to emphasize the idea that individuals should seek answers to life's questions through logical deduction, including the careful study of mathematics and science, which they said were the forces that governed the universe. The empiricist, on the other hand, claimed that sensory experience should be the starting point for human knowledge. According to empiricism, it's the senses, taste, touch, smell, hearing, sight, that give us humans all the raw data we need. And without those senses, there would be no knowledge at all. But are those all the senses that exist? Or is there perhaps some sixth sense, some innate ability that certain people are able to tap into in order to gain knowledge that seems impossible to possess? That's another debate that's been going on for centuries. Whether or not some people have psychic abilities that allow them to tap into knowledge about places and events that they should not be able to know. Throughout history, there have been countless stories of people who claim to possess this so-called second sight the supposed extrasensory ability to receive psychic information, often through dreams or visions. People who claim they possess these abilities sometimes claim that they have no control over their visions, which come over them unexpectedly. In many instances, these visions are distressing, 
as they often involve violent acts or times of great stress. In particular, some paranormal researchers have claimed that there are certain ethnic groups which contain a higher prevalence of people who possess this sixth sense. The Gales of the Scottish Highlands refer to this ability as the De Shalad, or Two Sights. And there is a common belief throughout Scotland and Ireland that these gifts run in families and can be handed down from generation to generation. Similar beliefs can be found among the Dene people of northern Canada. The Dene, also known as the Athabascans, are a First Nations ethnic group made up of 21 different tribes throughout northern Canada and Alaska. Back in the year 1900, there lived a Canadian frontiersman named Poole Field. He had once been a decorated member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. After receiving an honorable discharge from the force, he decided to move into the Northwest Territories where he opened a general store. Throughout Field's career, his travels often brought him in contact with members of the Dene tribes. He became fascinated as he learned more about the Dene medicine men who were said to possess the gift of second sight. Field would later write about witnessing Dene shaman rituals in which the medicine man would sing themselves into a trance-like state, during which they were able to foretell the future. One story Field recounted in some letters to a friend told of a Casca Dene shaman he met in the eastern Yukon, a man everyone called the Little Doctor because of his many folk remedies he administered to people in need. Field was fascinated by some of the stories he heard about the Little Doctor's abilities to predict the future. Although it took some time and effort before he was finally able to meet the man in person. The Little Doctor was notoriously reclusive and would usually send his sons to the local trading post with the furs his family trapped. Finally, in the spring of 1908, Field convinced the Little Doctor to meet him at his trading post at Ross River. Several days before the Little Doctor's visit, though, Field's partner had taken their steamboat down the Yukon River to Dawson City to purchase new supplies. Only he never returned back when he was expected. Field had no idea what happened to him. When the little doctor arrived, one of Field's native customers suggested that he ask the medicine man if he could provide a vision of where his missing partner had gone to. Field was skeptical, but he figured it couldn't hurt. So he gave the little doctor some tobacco as a gift and asked him if he could tell him where his partner went. The little doctor told him he'd do what he could, although he didn't make any promises. The following morning, Field went to the little doctor's teepee and the medicine man told him that he had a dream about his missing partner. He said that Field's partner's boat was a great distance away, and that a strange group of Indians was approaching the store from another direction and would arrive within a few hours after the boat did. A steamboat did arrive a few days later, but it was not his partner's steamboat. But the little doctor insisted that this was not the boat he had seen in his dream. He went on to describe in detail the boat Field and his partner owned, right down to the smokestack and deck rigging, even though the man had never actually seen any steamboat before. Sure enough, a few nights later, Field received a knock at his cabin door late at night. When he opened the door, his partner was standing there telling him how he had been delayed. And a few hours after the boat landed, a group of Indians from the Laird River arrived as well, just as the little doctor described. Another incident involving a prophetic dream by a Dene woman occurred several decades later on June 11, 1945. That was when two Indian trappers drowned in the Wapiti River in the British Columbian Rockies. The men were named Archie Belcourt and Joseph Latan. Belcourt and Latan had attempted to cross the river on horseback but were swept off their horses by the powerful current. 
Although a search party tried to locate the men's remains, their bodies were not found. That is until a month later when a Beaver Dene Indian woman from the Horse Lake First Nation Reserve, about 150 miles away from the Wapiti River, had a prophetic dream. She said that she dreamed she was in a canoe on a river in the middle of the wilderness that was being guided by her late husband, and another guide her husband knew, who was also long dead. The woman's husband had drowned in the Wapiti River several years earlier. Her husband's spirit took her to a particular spot along the riverbank. He then led her out of the boat onto shore, where he pointed to a human corpse. Her husband then led her to a spot on the opposite shore where another body lay. Joseph Latan's widow heard of this woman's dream, and she asked if she could lead them to the real-world location to see if her husband's body was there. Although the Dene woman had never been to the Wapiti River before, she was able to direct them along the same path her husband and the guide had paddled in her dream. And at the end of that path, they found the skeletal remains of Joseph Latan and Archie Belcourt, precisely where the woman had dreamed they would be. Skeptics view prophetic dreams as nothing more than lucky guesses or attempts to make connections to real-world events that really aren't there, both of which are valid points. On top of that, you also have to consider that in the case of most people who claim to have clairvoyant visions, we usually only have the person's word that they actually dreamed such events before they occurred. One of the most well-documented incidents involving prophetic dreams and psychic visions happened back in 1993 when a couple named John and Nancy Bosco were brutally murdered in their Montana home. It all started when John's mother had a nightmare about her son's death before it occurred. This would lead her to consult a famous psychic named Daniel Brinkley for further information. And according to reports, Brinkley's sixth sense allowed him to see and describe the murder with shocking accuracy. Even stranger still is that the murderer was having visions of his own. I'm Nate Hale. And I see podcast listeners. They're everywhere. And this is The Conspirators. To say that the use of psychics in official police investigations is controversial would be an understatement. In 1993, a survey was conducted of police departments in the 50 largest cities in the United States, which revealed that a third of them had accepted predictions from people claiming to be psychic, although only seven departments treated this information any differently than any other tips they might receive. No police department reported any instances of a psychic investigator providing information, that proved any more helpful than any other information received during the course of the investigation. Even still, there have been enough cases where law enforcement consulted psychics for information that in the year 2000, the U.S. Justice Department actually issued an official report detailing ways to contact and work with psychics. Over the years, there have been numerous studies conducted to test the validity of information psychics have provided to law enforcement. In 1960, a Dutch police officer named Philippus Brink conducted a year-long study of psychics, but he ultimately didn't find any evidence of psychics being helpful in any significant way. Another study was conducted in 1982 where evidence from four crimes were given to three groups. One was a group of psych detectives, another was a group of average college students, and the third were actual police detectives. Each group was given several clues related to four crimes. Two of those crimes had been solved, while the other two had not been. 
The study found no difference in the abilities of the three groups to deduce details of the crimes based on the evidence. But later on, it was determined there were some flaws in the scientific method used in these tests. A further study was conducted by the University of Hertfordshire of three psychics were shown objects related to three major crimes. Although the psychics offered several theories, none of these theories were proved accurate. Skeptics of psychic abilities point out how many psychics offer vague statements that are either wildly inaccurate or so vague that when a case is solved, they are looking for ways to connect these statements to the facts. For example, during the investigation into the Long Island serial killer, a psychic said that one of the victim's bodies would be found in a shallow grave, near water, and a sign with a G on it would be nearby. When a body was later discovered, the New York Post published an article with a headline claiming the psychic nailed it, when in fact they really hadn't. There is water everywhere around Long Island, the body wasn't in a shallow grave, and no sign with a G was visible anywhere near it. There are plenty of cases you can point to where the information provided by psychics wasn't just wrong, it was actually detrimental to the case. In November 2004, legendary psychic Sylvia Brown told the mother of kidnapping victim Amanda Berry, who had disappeared 19 months earlier, that her daughter was dead. Barry's mother died two years later believing her daughter had been murdered. The problem was, the kidnapped girl was still alive. She was one of the victims of Ariel Castro, who had also kidnapped and held two other young women in his basement. This wasn't the only time Brown, despite having a legendary reputation for her psychic gifts, got things so horribly wrong either. In October 2002, Brown appeared on the Montel Williams show. In that episode, she told the parents of kidnapping victim Sean Hornbeck that the young man was dead, when in fact he was discovered alive four years later. One major problem with a lot of these tips provided by psychics such as Sylvia Brown is that they can divert the course of an investigation and waste the investigator's precious time by forcing them to follow up on false leads. They can also cause even further grief to families who still hold out hope their loved ones are alive. But have there ever been any cases where the psychic appears to have gotten things right? Although the majority of cases I discovered while researching this topic don't seem to have provided much correct information. There is one case in particular that I came across where, purportedly, three people who were directly involved had some sort of psychic visions about the crime. This included the murderer himself. And that's the case of John and Nancy Bosco. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Back in 1990, Nancy Peterson was 29 years old and working in computer sales in Colorado. She was known for her outgoing personality and charming demeanor, all of which added up to her being a really great salesperson. 
One thing Nancy would sometimes do to close a sale would be to visit a potential customer's home and do a personal demonstration. That's how she met 38-year-old furniture maker John Bosco. By all accounts, it was love at first sight for the couple. The two of them started dating right away. And in December 1990, John and Nancy got married. At the time the couple met, John had just gotten through a brutal divorce and he was still involved in a nasty custody battle over his kids. Two years after they got married, John convinced Nancy that they should move to Big Fork, Montana. John had found a fantastic deal on a house with lots of land and a big woodworking studio that was attached to it. What was even better, the owner had informed John that the place was zoned for commercial purposes, meaning that John could actually do his furniture business right there out of the home. In early 1993, the couple moved to Big Fork. And at first, it seemed like their dream home. The house had lots of space for John and Nancy and even had plenty of room for John's kids when they visited. But after the couple moved in, John learned the shocking news that the land wasn't actually zoned for commercial work at all. So if John tried conducting business out of the house, he would in fact be breaking the law. John immediately confronted the former owner, Joe Clark, over the apparent lie. Only Clark denied ever telling John that. He claimed he had been completely honest through the entire transaction. While all this drama was going on, John's mother, Antoinette Bosco, who went by Tony, was experiencing some trouble of her own. She lived in Connecticut, and one night, Tony had a terrifying nightmare that left her shaking as she awoke. In the dream, she saw her son, John, standing far away. Bizarrely enough, he was dressed as a caveman straight out of a Flintstones cartoon. But as comical as that was, Tony was horrified to see some sort of gigantic machine bearing down on John, who seemed oblivious to it. In later interviews, Tony was vague on just what sort of machine this was. But it was big and terrifying, and as it got closer to her son, she screamed for him to look out. Only he didn't. And the machine suddenly swallowed him up. Tony woke up in a cold sweat with her heart pounding in her chest. She didn't know what to make of the dream. All she knew was that it scared her. She wanted to call John and warn him, but of what, she didn't know. She ultimately decided not to bother him since she knew how busy he was trying to get things straightened out with the house and his custody battle with his ex-wife. By the middle of August 1993, John and Nancy were planning on returning to Colorado for a custody hearing over John's kids. But on August 19th, Tony Bosco received the one phone call no mother ever wants to receive. The voice on the other end of the line was a Montana sheriff. He told Tony that John and Nancy never made it to Colorado because someone had brutally murdered them. Over the previous few days, a neighbor began to notice that John and Nancy's car was parked in the driveway of their home, fully packed as if they were taking a trip. Finally, on the 19th, the neighbor decided to investigate. They went over to the house and noticed a bathroom window was open. As the neighbor drew closer, they were hit with an awful stench pouring out of the window. That's when they phoned the police. Police investigators discovered the bodies of John and Nancy Bosco lying face up in their bed. They were covered in flies and maggots and clearly had been there for several days. Both of them had been shot. John was shot once in the head while Nancy had been shot twice. Strangely, the killer had placed a pillow over Nancy's face after she had been shot. It was almost as if the killer couldn't bear to look her in the face after seeing what he or she had done. The killer broke into the Bosco home by pushing open the bathroom window and climbing inside. The killer had then shut off the power to the house and cut the phone lines. 
The killer then crept up the steps to the master bedroom where John and Nancy Bosco were sleeping. The killer shot once, then fired three more times, although only two of those bullets struck Nancy. Police didn't find any fingerprints and nothing appeared to be stolen from the house. This indicated that robbery was unlikely to be the motive for the murders. Investigators believed this had to be something personal. The first suspect the police looked at was John's ex-wife. Police were aware of the nasty custody battle going on between them. But there wasn't any evidence that John's ex flew all the way to Montana to murder the couple in their sleep. It wasn't long, though, before police also learned of the situation between John Bosco and the former owner of the house, Joe Clark. It turns out the disagreement the men had over the zoning regulations for the property had escalated into a bitter argument. John was planning on suing Clark in civil court because he claimed the man had lied to him in order to close the deal. Although this could possibly present a motive for murder, there was also no evidence tying Clark to the murders. With no suspects and no evidence, the case grew cold. Police had no more leads to go on. This left Tony Bosco in a difficult place. She was devastated with grief over the deaths of her son and daughter-in-law. At the same time, she was also feeling guilty. Because after she learned that John and Nancy were dead, she couldn't help but remember her vivid dream in which John died. Nancy was a devout Christian, and she began to worry that her nightmare had been some sort of premonition of her son's murder. If only she had told John about her dream, maybe she could have somehow prevented his death. Which was ridiculous when you think about it. Tony's dream didn't seem to have anything to do with someone shooting John and Nancy with a gun. And even if it had, most people wouldn't take it seriously even then. Even still, Tony couldn't shake the feeling that if she had just spoken up, that her son might still be alive. About three weeks later, in September 1993, Tony and John's two brothers flew to Montana to see the house where John and Nancy died. Tony felt a terrifying sensation of dread as she made her way up to the bedroom where John and Nancy were murdered. There were still bullet holes and blood spatter on the walls. It soon became too much for her. Tony fell to her knees and prayed for help. Tony's frustrations only grew further as the weeks wore on and the police appeared to be making no progress in solving the murder. That's when Tony decided to take matters into her own hands. She hired a famous psychic named Daniel Brinkley in the hope that he could help her solve the crime. Brinkley claimed that he had gained his psychic visions back in 1975 after he was struck by lightning while he was on the phone. The jolt of electricity was so powerful it lifted him off his feet for a second. Brinkley was rushed to the hospital, where he died. He then claimed that his soul rose up into a brilliant white light where he encountered 14 angels in what he presumed was heaven. After he returned to Earth, he discovered that he had the ability to see the future. Brinkley claimed that he had made dozens of perfectly accurate predictions, including Ronald Reagan's election and the fall of the Soviet Union. Although Brinkley was known for his ability to see the future, Tony still hoped that he could help her see the past as well and tell her of who murdered her son. Tony met Brinkley in a hotel room. She brought along her sister to take notes of the experience. When the session began, Daniel Brinkley closed his eyes and he brought his hand to his forehead. After a moment, he began to speak, describing the vision he was having. He said that all of a sudden, it was as if he was inside the killer's head and seeing through his eyes. The vision that came to him was jittery, almost like watching an old film strip. 
but he could still see clearly enough to know what the killer did on the night of the murders. He said he saw the killer approach the house late at night. Then he saw him cut the phone lines and shut off the power before opening the bathroom window and climbing through. Then he followed along as the killer mounted the steps and headed directly to the master bedroom where he opened fire on John and Nancy Bosco. Now keep in mind that practically every detail Daniel Brinkley described to Tony Bosco that day had already appeared in the newspaper. But there were a couple of things he said that didn't appear in any news stories. One was that he had the strong sense that the killer had been inside the house before and knew his way around. Another even more important detail Brinkley told Tony Bosco was that he had seen the killer's face and could describe him. He said that he got a look at the killer when he stepped in front of a mirror. The killer, Brinkley said, was a teenage boy about 18 or 19 years old. He said he had a medium bill, inset eyes, and was wearing jeans and cowboy boots. He also said he thought the young man was a college student from out west. He asked Tony if maybe John had an apprentice that worked for him, and Tony said no. But Brinkley couldn't shake the feeling that this was not the first time this young man had been inside the house. By that point, Tony was beginning to feel like this had been a waste of time and money. It didn't make any sense to her why a college kid from out west would come all the way to Montana to murder her son. There was one last thing that Daniel Brinkley added before they parted ways. He said that Tony didn't need to keep worrying because the police would catch the murderer within two months. The really startling part about all this is that Brinkley was right about everything. Tony tried sharing what Brinkley told her with the Montana police, but they weren't interested in the word of a psychic. Then on December 7th, Tony Bosco received another phone call from a Montana sheriff. He was calling to tell her that they had caught John and Nancy's killer. The murderer was an 18-year-old college student at George Fox University in Oregon. He had a medium build and inset eyes, and he was also very familiar with the inside of the house. That's because he used to live there. The killer's name was Shadow Clark, and he was the son of the former owner Joe Clark. Although it was a major break for the police to have finally made an arrest, it still didn't fully explain why this supposedly clean-cut kid with a full-ride scholarship to a Christian college would murder two people he claimed he didn't know. Shadow Clark wasn't able to give a good explanation why he committed the murders either. He said he didn't know John and Nancy Bosco at all and wasn't aware of the disagreement between them and his dad. And yet, for some reason, by the middle of 1993, he also said he had become plagued with terrifying recurring nightmares. Shadow said that he kept dreaming that he was standing outside his childhood home in the middle of the night with a gun in his hand. He told police that he vividly dreamed of climbing the steps inside his old home and shooting a sleeping couple in their bed. Shadow had bought the 9mm pistol earlier that summer. This all led up to the night of August 12th when Shadow got the overwhelming urge to take his gun and a flashlight with him as he drove to his former home on Kelly Drive. It was 1.47 a.m. when he cut the phone line and shut off the power to the house. He then pried open the bathroom window and went up to the master bedroom where he shot John and Nancy Bosco while they slept. He said his first bullet struck John Bosco in the skull. The shot woke Nancy, who reached over for her glasses on the bedside table. Shadow then shot at her three more times. And after she was dead, he couldn't bear to look her in the eyes. So he picked up a pillow and placed it over her face. Then Shadow said he gathered up the still warm cartridges, drove home, and went back to bed.
The following morning when Shadow awoke, he said he wasn't sure if all that really happened or if it was just another vivid nightmare. But when Shadow heard the news about the double homicide in his old house, he was horrified to realize what he had just done. After that, Shadow went off to college and tried to live with his guilt. But eventually he couldn't help himself. He had to tell someone. So he confided in his college roommate that he had done something terrible. Shadow's roommate was horrified by what he heard. He reported what Shadow told him to the school and they soon contacted the police. As for the reason Shadow murdered the Boscos, he never could come up with a good explanation why he had done it. He said he didn't know the couple. Shadow's lawyer tried to convince him to come up with some reason he would have committed the crime, in the hope that the judge would show leniency on him. But Shadow stuck to his story that the couple were strangers to him, and he thought the murder was another vivid dream. Shadow Clark was ultimately sentenced to 220 years in prison. It's difficult to say what to make of the story. Although many articles you read on the Bosco murders claim that Daniel Brinkley solved the crime, he really didn't. Police caught the killer completely on their own without using any of the information Brinkley provided. In many cases where psychics claim to have solved a crime, we only have their word for it that they came up with any accurate information before that info was revealed publicly. But in the case of Daniel Brinkley, we have Tony Bosco's word, as well as the notes written by her sister, as proof that Brinkley actually made the predictions he did. And those predictions all proved to be spot on. The real problem is that none of the premonitions experienced by Daniel Brinkley, Tony Bosco, and even Shadow Clark don't seem to have done any good at changing the course of events. Which opens up another terrifying possibility. If some people really do have the ability to predict the future, what if everything is set in stone and there's nothing any of us can do to change it? That Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Alexander and Megan. I really appreciate your support, as well as the support of all my other patrons. Just a reminder that the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, early episode releases, and an ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. In addition, I also wanted to remind you that I started a new TikTok account where I've been rapidly adding a growing library of short-form videos that are like little bite-sized nugget versions of the podcast. I'll put a link to my TikTok in the show notes as well. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Currently, you can find the Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else throughout the podcasting multiverse. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, X, whatever the heck they're calling it this week. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.